Hello and welcome to the Autism in Real Life podcast. In each episode, you'll get practical strategies by taking a journey into the joys and challenges of life with autism. I'm your host, Ilya Walsh, and I'm an educator and a parent of two young adults, one of which is diagnosed on the autism spectrum. Join me as I share my experience and the experiences of others so that we may see the unique gifts and talents of individuals on the autism spectrum fully recognized. everyone and welcome. Um, I'm really excited today to be able to connect with Dr. Tony Atwood. Um, I know we've connected before. Um, you had spoken many times at A&E where I was working in the past and I'm very happy to have you here. So welcome. Thank you, Ilya. Uh, I'm delighted and, and you asked me to talk about a topic that I find absolutely fascinating, enjoyable, and I have learned a lot from those with autism about dinosaurs and drain covers in their special interest. <laughs> and I'm very excited to talk about that. And um, people always learn so much from your talks. I know I've learned so much. Uh, many people are often moved by some of your um, you know, presentations and conferences. I know uh, someone that I work with who was, many people leave in tears sometimes with some of your presentations because they resonate so deeply with some of the things you talk about. Um, but I know today I'm excited to talk about this topic because this is like super fun and I really, uh, I'm excited by it as well. But before we kind of go down that path, um, would you be able to just give a little bit of background about yourself for those who may not be familiar with your work and are new to this autism world? Mm, okay. I began when I was 19 years old, first year psychology student, and went to a special school and met two classically autistic children way back in 1971. So next year will be, oh dear, 50 years. Good heavens. It's gone so quickly. And so I've spent my life, really, um, understanding and supporting people, as we now say, on the spectrum. When I began, all we knew was classic autism, had very high support needs, and it now goes through to professors who use their special interests, and people actually pay them for their specialist knowledge. So I work as a clinician. I'm actually an adjunct professor, and I still, at the age of 68, um, specialize in seeing clients, some of whom I've seen for over 30 years. I also have autism in the family. I have a son on the spectrum and other relatives as well. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, great. Thank you so much. And so why don't we get into it? Let's get talking about special interests and why, um, you know, I think the, the biggest thing is, and I know you've uh, talked about this before, but, but how did you come to create a whole talk just around um, special interests? It's one of your topic lists, you know. <laughs> because it, it is such a central part of autism. And it, it can be an advantage, it can be a disadvantage. The advantage is that when I'm seeing somebody for a diagnostic assessment and they're very reluctant to engage, and you can say, I don't want to be here, then when I say, I understand that you're interested in snakes, tell me, what's your favorite snake and why is it your favorite snake? The person is transformed. They become another character. 
And when they're engaged in the special interest, it's almost as though the social difficulties have gone. There's enthusiasm, enjoyment and delight. It's like the on button that can occur. Um, it's also something that the person needs in their life. And, and throughout this podcast, one of the things I want to go through is why is the special interest so important for those with autism? Right. No, I think you, you hit it right on the head. I think it helps with engagement. Um, it helps with building rapport. And, uh, and honestly, I learn so much when I work with people and find out what their special interests, uh, especially, you know, young children, it's really fun um, when they talk about what they're passionate about. And just like all of us, right, when we talk about what we're passionate about, we kind of light up. And uh, I find that, you know, really exciting. Yeah, it is. It's what I call the, the silver lining in many ways. There are many challenges being bullied and teased, uh, being overwhelmed by sensory experiences. And so life has a lot of challenges. But the great thrill, and it is a thrill for those on the spectrum, is the special interest. Now, the trouble is it can be such a thrill and, and have many functions. The risk is it becoming too dominant in that person's life to reach a clinical significance, not just enjoyment, but it becomes beyond an obsession. And in a way, um, it moves into an addiction. Okay. Oh, interesting, because I was going to ask you about that. One of the things that um, I know I've thought about and oftentimes when working with educators, you know, we talk about special interests and using it in the way we've talked about so far, which is, you know, to build rapport and to engage and use as incentive. However, you know, sometimes the feedback and pushback that I'll get is no, but they just kind of, you know, the student will get lost in it and I won't be able to bring them back or, um, you know, they're going to just want more and more time. And so then it becomes something that takes away from what they're doing and, you know, the, the original intended purpose of the special interest. So I'm glad that you're bringing that up. Mm, I think we need to explore that further. Yeah, absolutely. So, so when we talk about special interests, and again, you know, I know, you know, we're we're diving in here, but let's take a step back and and talk about what does that look like. So, when you're looking at either a younger child or a young adult into adulthood, what kind of things are we talking about? Like, what is this whole concept of special interest in general? Yeah, there seems to be a sort of a developmental sequence. The first stage is really collecting objects. And finding the presence of those objects actually very enjoyable and comforting. A typical child will like a teddy bear because it's soft and squishy and reminds them of mum. <laughs> that could be very comforting. But here, it's, it's a delight with a pepper grinder because of the smoothness of the surface. Or it, it's pebbles and gems that seem absolutely absorbing in their sensory qualities. And the person with the objects, which are often lined up, put in order, and there's a fascination with symmetry. And that's a major theme in the interest is symmetrical schemes, cataloging, knowing all the information and so on. So first of all, it's a collection of an unusual object that if it disappears, they're absolutely devastated. Or when they have a meltdown, affection, consoling, distraction doesn't work. But as soon as you return the Thomas the Tank Engine, everything's okay again. So it starts off with an object. Then it's um, a concept, often transport, 
Yeah, it can be from trains, helicopters, all sorts. Anything that gets me out of here. Um, it can be alternative worlds, dinosaurs, no school, no people. There's always an emotional and almost symbolic component of the interest. But again, we'll explore that later. But it's a theme that they're interested in. Now, it may be what other kids are interested in, but Pokemon or whatever. But they take it to a level where it dominates their life much more than typical kids. Typical kids can be very flexible and, and do a range of interests. Here, there's a, a fascination with this topic that they read almost every dinosaur book that they can find. All they want to talk about is dinosaurs, and they learn Latin to, to speak it, and they, or they know the capitals of every country in the world and their flags and things like that. And so it moves into a stage of information on a topic. And as the person develops, it may be every Beatles record that they can find. And it seems that you've got to catalogue it, order it, structure it. And it has, again, many functions. But then in the teenage years and beyond, it can actually be a person. And it's called stalking. And here, there's someone, whether they are fictitious or real, if they can be in the media or they can be in their personal life. And so there's a fascination with an individual. So there seems to be a developmental sequence. I see. Okay. And so if we're looking at, um, you were talking about early on with the collection of unusual objects and uh, you know, in some cases, I would say, let's say teddy bears or Thomas the Tank Engine or dinosaurs don't seem that unusual for a, a younger child, let's say three to seven or eight or whatever. Um, but so what would, where would it switch to saying, oh, well, this is more than just a typical type of interest and fascination? It, it, it's in a way, it's that or nothing else. And there isn't the diversity of interests. And once engaged in the interest, this is where we look at one of the functions of the special interest. And that is as a thought blocker or to enter an alternative world. If you're highly anxious, sometimes if you're depressed, but if you're anxious and overwhelmed, then the special interest is a blocker to anxious or depressive thoughts. And so for that individual, there is then a degree of compulsion and when thwarted from access to that, become extremely distressed. So for a typical kid, if mum says, OK, time to stop Minecraft now, it's lunchtime. And the kid will say, oh, OK, lunchtime, that's fine. But the child with autism will say, no, no, I've got to continue. I've got to finish the game. In other words, there's a compulsion for completion that the activity overrides any social commitment. Right, right. And, I, you know, it's interesting, as you say that, I think there are so many people who, you know, may or may not be on spectrum who sometimes fall into this. And I think the piece that you hit on is um, sort of that soothing uh, effect that a special interest can have with anxiety and depression. Mm. And, and this is where it can overstep the line with uh, computer games and so on, that it starts off as a, a natural talent. And, and usually the special interest is based on emotions and a value in emotion regulation and expression. Um, but it also gives you a sense of self-worth, status, and with computer games now, a social network. 
And when you're on the computer, you don't have autism. You don't have to read facial expressions. You don't have to talk about pleasantries and people's experiences and disclose your own thoughts and feelings. You've got an objective. And so often in the team games on the computer, the person with autism is valued because they are very good at the game naturally, um, but also their uh, intuitive knowledge. And it seems to be there's an intuitive talent in this particular area that boosts self-esteem. So if you're not good socially, if you're not good at sport, then your knowledge in that topic impresses other people. It's not patronizing. People go, wow, you're drawing of a horse. That's amazing. And they know it is because they've seen other six-year-olds drawings of horses and it's nothing like what they do. So it gives you a sense of self-worth, identity. It's a source of pleasure in a life that may have few pleasures. It's a means of relaxation. And you enter an alternative world where you may not have autism. Right. And and I think also you brought up as we move into the teen and uh, young adult years, you were talking about things where um, there are no people. I think you said dinosaurs and other um, sorts of activities. And I, I'm missing the second piece, but where there's, uh, you know, where it's sort of like an alternate reality. It is. If you if you're not valued by your peers, in fact, you're bullied and teased, rejected and humiliated then you think, okay, well, there must be a world, uh, science fiction, Star Wars, uh, Hogwarts, dinosaurs. Um, and so one of the things that can occur in autism, we tend to say, oh, yes, they read books on technology and information. No, not always. Sometimes it's reading and writing fiction to create in science fiction an alternative world where I'm valued, where I'm understood, where I'm in control. And so the person in having their nose in a book also shuts out other people. And that's often what you want to do, but it's a socially acceptable characteristic. And I saw this week uh, a teenager, and we talked about meeting up with her friends at lunchtime. She said, no, 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 I go to the library. Why? Because I like books and I sort them. I give books legs. And I thought that's such a beautiful description. And um, so you you then find there's a, a talent in that area for someone for whom they are usually considered as under par in many areas. But this, they are demonstrably a talent. But that's what we need in society. Most of the major advances in science and arts are made by people on the spectrum. And I've just read a, a biography of Beethoven. And Beethoven was uh, a child prodigy, and so a lot of people wrote about him as a child. But when you look at it through the lens of autism, you say, oh, yes, he was on the spectrum. But what happened to a great extent with Beethoven, his sense of self was expressed in his music. And this is where in autism we have a new exploration of what's called alexithymia, and that is a difficulty converting thoughts and feelings to speech. What are you feeling now? I don't know. Okay. What they're saying is, I don't know how to grasp one of the many thoughts and feelings in my mind, hold it, identify it, and explain it in speech to you. But they can do it in the arts. They will write a song. They will create a drawing. 
And this is where some with autism go into the arts for a variety of reasons, but to express themselves. They are fantastic. The guitar players is one of the most self-stimulatory, repetitive behaviors you could have, <laughs> is the guitar solo. Uh, or they right, need a sense right. of rhythm, as in dancing on the trampoline or horse riding and a swing, and now they are playing the drums in a rock band. And that's rhythm. So it, it gives you an opportunity to express yourself, not only for uh, enjoyment, but it, it allows you to explore and explain the real you. Right, right. No, I think that's, and, and also the ability you had mentioned, you know, the, the advances in the arts and sciences, or really in even someone who just takes their interest in vacuums, for example, and makes that a career. Um, it's this intense focus and, you know, ability to understand and put it together when it's something that, um, from my experience, when it's something that they're super, you know, passionate about, um, it's amazing how much uh, knowledge can be remembered and put together. And like you said, you know, sorting and organizing and being able to then convey um, what they're thinking through that particular interest. It is fascinating. It is. And, and we're actually going to benefit from it in the next few months or years. With COVID-19, the chances are that the uh, vaccine will be discovered by someone on the spectrum. And they like and enjoy the world of viruses, and viruses are their friends. And as far as they're concerned, the world of viruses, that miniature microscopic world, is so fascinating to view and explore that world. They will have an ability to perceive the problem of creating the vaccine like no one else. And we'll be very grateful for them in doing that. Hey there, this is Ily again, and I hope you're enjoying this episode. I just wanted to take a moment and let you know that in addition to bringing you great interviews and content here on the Autism in Real Life podcast, I also offer online courses, workshops, and customized coaching. So if you're a family member an educator or a part of an organization looking for support or autism education, I would love to work with you to help meet your specific needs. Check out my website at thespectrumstrategy.com or email me at ilia, I-L-I-A, at thespectrumstrategygroup.com. You can also message me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. So I look forward to hearing from you. Take care. And so, you know, as we're talking about the, you know, when we talk about indulging and in, let's say, let's use the term indulging in the special interest too obsessively, um, you know, we want to create some balance here. I think what what are some of the, um, what are some of the negative, you know, aspects of overindulging in a special interest? Mm, the, 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 there isn't the diversity and there's extreme distress when thwarted. When you're very anxious, you're looking for ways of blocking the anxiety. And when somebody says, nope, you can't do the computer, you can't look at your dinosaur books, that's frustration that you cannot alleviate your anxiety. And that frustration leads to anger. And then the child can learn to use what I call emotional blackmail and become a domestic terrorist 
in terms of demanding access to the special interest for the many reasons that it's so enjoyable. So it can lead to controlling behaviours. It can lead to a level of engagement that means that the person has effectively become a recluse and they're not socialising, they're not going to various places. And that's gone over the boundary of, and sometimes rather than calling it a special interest, we'll call it pleasures, what your pleasures are. And in a way, sometimes the pleasure is so enjoyable, it's like heroin or morphine. It gives an alternative state of reality and well-being that is such a contrast to ordinary life that you become addicted to it. And that's what I think a lot of teenagers and young adults uh, with autism are experiencing is the potential as the first generation that has so much access to the amazing computer games. They are addicted. And this is where the computer games manufacturers actually employ people from the gambling industry to make the games addictive. And it's successful. Yes, it is. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, it, when you're saying that, it's making me think of this time right now that we have all been in, you know, a lockdown, semi-lockdown. And, you know, many people, especially young people, are home um, and can't go out the way they would normally go out or meet friends or engage in other activities. And so, you know, we're all kind of a little trapped right now, but, <laughs> but particularly makes me think of if you have a lack of diversity of ways to um, kind of relieve stress, uh, it makes it uh, super challenging right now. It is. And the other functions of the special interest, the special interest, yes, it's a thought blocker, but it's also an energizer. And it gives you a thrill and energy. So if you're depressed, and there are many reasons why someone with autism will be depressed, but one is energy depletion from trying to manage your anxiety at school, coping with the sensory and the social and so on. So you have been mentally drained throughout the school day. And when you get home, you want a quick fix in inverted commas. You want a quick infusion of energy. And that's what the game does. And that's why it, it, it is so sort of positively reinforcing, because it ends an unpleasant, draining feeling, and it gives you energy. And uh, that's another reason why it can have such a powerful influence in your life. Sure. No, that, that makes, uh, that definitely makes sense. And so, um, but let's, let's come back to all the positives, because I think special interests really do have such a... Um, uh, a great place in people's lives. I, I've often talked to um, parents too, you know, and educators who are in a very stressful place oftentimes um, saying, you know, you need to find things that bring you pleasure and bring you joy. And so that way it can help de-stress, right? So I think to, to your point, these are why um, people engage in these types of activities. And so, you know, I think special interests hold a, a place um, in you know being able to self-regulate, being able to um, find joy and pleasure in activities. Mm. And, and my personal view clinically is that the special interest should be woven into the curriculum because if you're doing a reading program, the other kids are interested in whatever these kids are doing in their stories, but 
I suppose the kid with autism is, I don't care. I'm not interested in what they're doing. But if this is a story about dinosaurs or Thomas the Tank Engine, you've got motivation. And one of the major problems in a classroom for autism is motivation. They're not motivated to please the teacher, impress the other kids, all those sorts of things. It's something I want to do because of the intrinsic enjoyment in what I'm doing. So a flexible teacher will be able to not count blocks. It's counting how many Thomas engines are in this picture or whatever it is. Because once you say Thomas the Tank Engine or whatever it is, you've got the interest. So please weave it in. Or when you've done this activity, you will be free to discover volcanoes. But we must wait until you've done the activity, then you're free to do volcanoes. Right, right. And that's, that's the, um, those are sort of the strategies I uh, talk to educators about. And one thing I sort of generally mention, and this is really more from my own personal experience, but, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but oftentimes I've told educators, special interests are great as motivators, um, but please don't use them as, you know, negative consequences. So don't like take, right? Don't take it away because it's such an important part of their lives that it's okay to use it as a motivator, but not as, you know, a negative consequence. Ilya, you are so right. That's not punishment. That's revenge. You've upset me (laughs) and I'm going to upset you in a way that I know really hurts you. And, And so it is not appropriate because if it is their blocking of anxiety, if it's an energizer when you're depressed... What are the parents and teachers going to give to replace the missing interest? And you've got to give them an alternative. Otherwise, you're going to get somebody who's going to become increasingly volatile and worse in that setting. Because if you say, right, no computer tonight, I don't care. Well, okay, no computer for a week. I still don't care. Well, no computer for a month. I still don't care. Right, you'll never, ever have your computer again. I still don't care. (laughs) And you're thinking, oh, no. Yes. Right, right. And that's not ever going to really fully come to fruition anyway. <laughs> not in no, this when world you, right when now. you do confrontation in autism, it won't work. What you have to do, if I am saying, okay, and I have to with teenagers, I say, look, please be honest here. How many hours a day, school day and weekend, do you spend on the computer? And I make sure parents aren't there. And okay, I need to know that. And what I need to do is use logic. And I have to explain World Health Organization, posture, heart conditions, eyesight, all those sorts of things. I've got a list of reasons to explain the logic of why reducing. Now, okay, you're on the computer six hours a day. Right. Let's see if we can do five hours, 45 minutes. (laughs) Okay. Just 15 minutes less. And there's a prize if you do that. Right. You're now five hours, 45. Let's see if we can do five hours, 30. We'll never go below two to three hours. That's sacrosanct. That's there for you. That will always be there. But beyond that is a level of psychological and medical concern. And that's why we're having to put a restriction on this. And I think you raise a really good point in this strategy of giving all of the uh, evidence, I would call it, as to why, you know, let's say too much computer use, um, you know, we know has these negative, this negative impact on our bodies or our mind or whatever. I think 
having to come up with um, very strategic evidence that you find because I find, I know again, just from personal experience, you know, if I just say, well, it's not good for you, it's like, well, show me the evidence that it's not good for me. Where did you hear that? Where did you read that? Right. So I think it's, it shows that you're really taking an interest and that you're, you're not like just making it up because you just don't want them on the computer. Right. But basically you're showing you're caring, not being mean. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's important. Um, and so uh, in thinking about special interests, I think we were talking about when we move through the, the, the teenage young adult phase, if we move into the adult phase, does this look a little bit different? Because I think, um, I don't know, I'm thinking of people that I've worked with and, you know, there's sort of maybe multiple special interests. Yeah. Where you have like one that's, you know, for free time and then perhaps, you know, your work environment, something like that. You, you do. You, you do get a, a, a wider range. Each interest has a use-by date, and that may be hours <laughs> or decades, and the replacement okay. will always be chosen by the person. Okay. Now, for example, it, sometimes the interest is to explore an emotional theme that you have difficulty disclosing in speech and conversation. For example, you may have somebody who's bullied and teased. And I, I don't want to talk about it to mum because she'd only worry about me. And I've got to sort it out myself. And I can't report it because it's worse at school to, to, to report it than, than cope with it. And, and, and so the way they explore it is by switching the interest to examples of Hollywood retribution movies, where they identify with the central character who's beaten up by the gangsters or Russian whatever it is and so on. And they identify with that character, and they're trying to explore it through television. So I want to know, there's something about this. Sometimes it's, it's escape. Okay, in which case, what is it about reality that you have difficulty coping with? We need to work on that. It can be, um, it, in, in many ways, uh, not only just uh, bullying and teasing, uh, we had one uh, child who was very close to his grandfather. His grandfather was a farmer, and they used to go around the farm together and have great time. But unfortunately, the farmer had a heart attack with his grandson, um, with him, and died. And his way of grieving was to take a special interest in heart disease, because he wanted to know why, okay? Because it was his way of coping with the grief is knowledge. Now, for example, Liliana had a, a fear of spiders. And whenever she saw a spider, she ran, but not to her mother for comfort, but to the bookshelves to read about spiders. Knowledge overcomes fear. And the more she read about spiders, the more she admired them and collected them. Or a fear of the noise of a thunderstorm may lead to a special interest in the weather system. And, and how they occur. So sometimes the interest is to understand and resolve a personal issue. Wow. I mean, how creative and intense that is, right? It is. But this is why I admire people with autism, is if, if you have difficulty disclosing alexithymia, 
your feelings and thoughts to other people and their way of dealing with it of affection. It's, it's not a hug, it's a squeeze. And why is squeezing me and how does squeezing me solve the problem? Um, you use your intellect because that's what you've got. And that's why in autism, the worst insult is to be called stupid. Because if you're not good socially and you're not good at sport, the one thing you've got is your intellect. So if I'm using a motivation system, it may be that it incorporates the interest. Or I'll say, wow, that shows how intelligent you are. That was the wise choice. I appeal to their need for confirmation of their intellect and thinking. But this means that the predators spot that the one thing you fear is making a mistake because it really hurts your self-esteem. Right, I'm going to tease you about making mistakes. And then the kid in the teenage years goes, ah, I made a mistake. They're right. I am stupid. And they start to take on board the derogatory comments, etc. So um, the special interest gives me an insight into the inner world of the autistic person. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, I had not thought of it that way before, but as you're saying it, I'm actually um, thinking about like, I'm getting flooded with all different ideas and examples. And I'm particularly struck. I was actually reading, I'm in a Facebook group, uh, you know, mom's group. And I was reading a, you know, a couple of parents frustrated with their younger children um, tantruming and biting and, you know, hitting. Um, and both happened to be nonverbal. And they said something to the effect of it's, you know, it seems to be coming out of nowhere. And another parent says it's usually not out of nowhere. It And, and, to what you're saying, it would, you know, not only do you know what you're feeling, but you might not have the words to put to it. And even if you could think them, you may not be able to express them. And so the amount of frustration, right, and anger and all that um, can become so overwhelming that you have no other way to express yourself but by lashing out then, right? Yeah, that is why I say we've got to do a translation here. We've got to go a bit deeper. What is it that is upsetting the individual? And in some ways, they can't express what they're feeling. And parents are often very keen on calming that person down. And they say, I can't use the special interest because that's rewarding inappropriate behavior. And I say, no. You need to do that because it's the off switch and it's the only off switch you've got. It's not rewarding inappropriate behavior. It's the off switch. Now, that can occur in a tantrum, but also a depression attack. And those with uh, autism are very prone to intense despair, especially when getting insight into their challenges. And it really does affect them. Sometimes we need something that is a complete distraction for the moment. So if you are in a crisis, please use the special interest as a thought blocker, as an off switch for the distress. Right. You know, and I think this is why this topic of special interests is so important, because I think um, to that, you know, to the point of a educator saying, you know, I, I but, you know, 
can't I take it away? And I would say no. And it's really lack of understanding of how uh, important these interests are and, and not really understanding how fundamental they are to like the person's feeling of safety on a day-to-day basis. And so, you know, I, I think that's, that's to, to really understand how special interests um, are integrated in someone's life you know, you would then know to not take it away, right? Like, I think you would know then, oh, wow, right, I really shouldn't do that because I'm going to put this person in distress. Yes, it's like saying to the teacher, okay, well, the teacher's saying, right, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to take away your glasses. And you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't punish the child by taking away their glasses. (laughs) But it's the equivalent. That's a great example. Yeah, Yeah. that's a great example. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, I think as we as we move into like the adult phase, when we're talking about picking something, I don't know, like if I'm looking at what can I, if, if I'm working with an adult, let's say, and there's multiple special interests and you talked about, you know, they all have a, you know, a, a use by date. <laughs> um, how, how can you, you know, I guess support someone in figuring out what the, you said it's determined by them, but helping them kind of, and maybe I'm asking the wrong question, but um, helping them find things that are helpful. Like maybe some people aren't sure what's helpful, or maybe it's, maybe it's just not even for me to help with. I don't even know. Okay. Now there are those with autism who grow up, get married or live together and have kids. And part of my work is, yes, early diagnosis and early intervention. It's also relationship counselling, where one partner is on the spectrum. And this is where, in the early stages, in the relationship, the often neurotypical wife will say, ah, his interest in trains, it's so endearing. He's, he's really into his, into his childhood, and it's, isn't it brave for him to do that? Ten years later, his bloody trains. He spends more time on his trains than anybody in the family. He, I'm sick to death of his bloody trains. <laughs> so, right, right. We're poor because he's just bought a new engine. And um, this, this is where you then have to look at it in a family and a relationship. But when the person comes home from work, they're exhausted and they need to be re-energized. But talking about work, affection, consolation, doesn't work. But what does work is the computer game and then resenting that when the person comes home that they don't engage. They're off on the computer discovering things about the pyramids or whatever it is that they may do because information is comforting, it's stable, it builds self-esteem and knowledge and so on. And so the person is seeking that, but it's a solitary pursuit. And one of the many things about the interest is they are chosen not to fit in with a peer group. They're chosen because the person finds them interesting. And so when you have a relationship, it can either disrupt the home setting or in an employment setting, it can actually be an advantage where the person becomes an expert. For example, Temple Grandin and her knowledge of uh, cattle and cattle feedlots and so on. She's uh, developed a career on her expertise in animals and understanding the world from a cow cattle point of view. And that degree of 
determination despite the adversity of the industry and to eventually be applauded for what she can do. I, I'm amazed. She's an amazing woman. But that shows you how the interest can be of great advantage to society, but may be difficult for the family to live. Right. Right. And, you know, I'm thinking that same example where, you know, the person comes home from work and then just wants to kind of decompress and does, you know, some research and kind of sits off also by themselves from their perspective. I mean, and I think I can resonate with this a little bit myself. You've spent the whole day being on and talking to people and working in whatever the setting is that you're in. But oftentimes we kind of have to put on that, right? Like the, the mask of being at work and that persona. And then when you come home, you feel safe and you want to kind of let all that go. And I find that with students too, when they go home, sometimes they kind of let it all go (laughs) after being at, you know, in their school or at work all day. And so to then engage again is ask, actually asking a lot. It, it is. And that's why in the relationship counseling, I say, look, we've got to look at a compromise. When your husband gets home, half an hour on the computer, okay, we'll set the timer. Because when you're involved in the special interest, time disappears. And so when the buzzer goes, you need to re-engage. You've been engaged all day, connected all day. You can have a break, but you then have to return. And and then once that there is the compromise, then it's better for all parties concerned. Right. No, that that makes sense. And again, it's it's important to understand all of these subtleties because on the surface, when we look at these sort of encounters or these particular events they appear different on the outside, but what's actually happening on the inside can be so uh, different. Mm. It is. And what the person may be doing is, to, to a great extent, um, engaging in the, the interest, which has a greater priority to other commitments. And in a family or relationship, there can be an envy of the delight. I've had young kids, typical kids, saying, I think dad loves his computer more than me. Right, right. Yeah, and that sounds so heartbreaking to hear it that way, right? And that's not really what was happening at all. <laughs> no, but the thing is, then then the dad said, but of course I love you. And then the child will say, well, how do I know? Well, uh, I do. Why, why would I need to tell you what you know? Why would I need to remind you? Have you forgotten? Have you got Alzheimer's? <laughs> so it, it it can be not recognizing neurotypicals needs in that setting right. as an adult yes right so again that comes back to like this really open and frank kind of conversations um about you know what each each member of a relationship regardless of kind of the type of relationship what do we need to feel like we're connected and to feel like we're being heard and all of those things and those with autism will say in return oh, you're obsessed with socializing you just seem to want to talk and talk <laughs> and socialize all the time that's your special interest right right <laughs> Now, I mean, you mentioned Temple Grandin, and I think she's a great example, of course, of um, taking a special special interest and also just her way of looking at the world. And 
making it into a career. Again, you know, we would we would look at it and say that is a pretty unusual career. Maybe not where she comes from and her background, but um, but looking at it as a a type of career would be like, wow, that's really specialized and very unique in its, uh, you know, just by its design. Um, but it's, she made that work for her. And in, I know oftentimes we'll talk about using a special interest as something that can be for a career. Um, but do you find that that happens often? I, I, I know I even, I even talk about it when I, when I work with educators or doing transition planning. Um, but do you find that that is that does actually happen a lot it, it does happen as a career but there's a dimension that i would like to address in this podcast and that is that the teenager with autism may not be included in the development of romance and sexuality they are often not included and when their peer group are constantly talking about how far they've gone in a relationship and how great it is. And, and this person has hardly got a friend, let alone beyond friendship. But they have the sexual response. And so in their exploration of sexuality, they will use the computer to explore sexuality. And that leads to pornography. And if pornography becomes a special interest, there's a determination to explore like Beatles records, every obscure Beatles record, um, to explore all the dimensions of pornography, which includes illegal. And they're on their own. They think that's okay. There's no crime involved here, but there is. And so I have a number of clients who've been charged with the offense of possession of child pornography. They're not pedophiles. They are not interested in a, an intimate sexual relationship with a child at all. But they were curious. Their view was, I wanted to make my own decision. I wanted to see for myself what it was like. Oh, no, I'd never do that with a child. But I was curious to know, why am I not allowed to see it? What's so bad about it? So their intellectual curiosity overrode any knowledge of the boundaries. And then, of course, the police quite rightly are on the doorways to these sites, they get the IP address, the FBI raids the house, takes the computer, finds child pornography, and there's a minimum five-year sentence. So there are interests that can go to a level of criminal concern. Yeah. Right. It's funny. It's funny you bring that up because um, I actually did a podcast with Isabel Hanel. So um, that will be, yeah, that'll be coming up in the future. But it's it's great to um, hear you talk about that. So we're, we're really thinking about, you know, and I could think not just in um, in pornography, but also expanded to interest in, you know, maybe uh, firearms, or we could go down, you know, in bomb making, right? Like there's so many different things, and really coming from this curiosity place and just wanting to explore what is all the taboo around these particular topics. And there is a danger of being recruited by extremist organizations. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And so, so yeah, I mean, we would, you know, we want to make sure we know what those red flags are as parents or possibly educators if we're seeing something in the classroom. But I think a lot of times this falls into right where where there's 
there is no more supervision. They're adults and they're doing their own thing. And so, um, but something definitely to raise awareness around. And uh, I know there are a lot of people doing work around, you know, uh, on the legal side of having a better understanding of this type of thinking and it not going into uh, better understanding that the intent was not criminal, although sometimes the law doesn't always understand that, right? And, and I have to write reports uh, on the individual and the unfortunate consequences of a custodial sentence of being in prison, because prison is the worst environment you could ever design for someone who's autistic. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that is another piece that we have to keep in mind. Um, and, you know, as, as I was saying with the career using special interests as a career opportunity, is that something that we should, as let's say as educators and parents, um, encourage, you know, if we, if we think that that's something that is, a, a, you know, healthy and can actually be a, um, a way for them to be self-sustaining. And I use that yeah, word with I mean, caution, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean a career in, in many ways. I, I describe universities as sheltered workshops for the socially challenged and a university is the cathedral for the worship of knowledge and so some go to university where they're actually paid to pursue medieval church architecture and so they may well find that in an academic environment where your intellect and knowledge is valued then that can be your successful career and they may never leave university but it may be in Microsoft or in a legal firm where they have a way of problem solving. When we have the phrase to think outside the box, an autistic person says, what box? And so on their own, <laughs> I love that. not in a team, they will go away. They'll go for a walk. They'll go into the mountains for a week and on their own in nature will suddenly come across a solution to the problem on their own. And then come back and everyone will say, wow, we never thought of it that way. That is what we need. But it's a solitary pursuit. So often the mechanisms, there's a characteristic of autism being a systematizer. You're looking for systems. In fact, you're also looking at systems socially. And you observe, analyze, and imitate. And one of the characteristics of autism is faking it. And that's why some aren't diagnosed till they're adult, because they camouflage their autism by learning how to act neurotypical. Um, so sometimes the, the diagnosis is made later on with someone with an illustrious career. Um, I, I saw somebody recently who was a, a judge and a renowned judge, but there was complaints because he was very critical of counsel who weren't good enough and would tell them that in front of their client in court. <laughs> and of course, they start complaining, but he keeps criticizing us. Yes, because you're crap. You're no good. <laughs> but he can't say that in court. But you are. <laughs> and, and what I call self-appointed revealer of the truth. So um, those sorts of things can occur. But the thing is, if you've got a talent, people will tolerate you. And that was the case with, with Beethoven. Not a nice guy in some ways, actually incredibly volatile and incredibly critical. The same with, with Mozart. He used to um, criticize the aristocracy for their 
musicianship when you shouldn't do that because they pay you. You don't get royalties. Right. The, 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 the prince pays you. And when you say to the prince uh, after a recital, no, that was crap, that wasn't good enough, you're not going to get any more. Um, <laughs> you're not getting paid. Yes. <laughs> so you, you've got to, to a certain extent, because you're good, people will tolerate some of the social challenges because you're needed in the organisation. So there can be other advantages. And this is where some companies now are deliberately choosing to recruit people on the spectrum because of their attention to detail, originality and problem solving, determination to pursue the project to the end. They don't go to work to socialize. They go to work to achieve. Oh, that's awesome. I, I like the way that you said that. And I think, um, actually with that, I think, you know, we could probably talk about this topic. It probably could be like a whole day conference or something, but, um, I think that is, uh, a great way to end because I think, um, if we look at it through that lens, we can really think about how we can leverage the strengths of those on spectrum for, you know, all different types of projects, all different types of work. And, um, you know, be able to just make it seriously a, a more neurodiverse, you know, type of team. Yes, I, I think this is, we, we need diversity and not to fear someone who's different because they may bring qualities into your personal life, but also to your work life and family life that Absolutely. you will benefit from. Well, thank you so much. This has been um, a lot, you know, we've talked about so many things and we touched on so many other topics too, which I know you could um, totally go off on and uh, hopefully we can um, connect again at some point in the future. That would be great. Okay. Yes. I'm delighted, Ilya, because um, the, the topic that you've chosen is one that I'd like to talk about more of because people say, can you talk about behavior management? Can you talk about diagnosis? <laughs> And I go, yeah, but when you say special interest, oh, yes, please. Yes, please. Yes. Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, okay, well, if people wanted to find out more uh, about you and all of the great resources that you have to offer, you have lots of books, lots of tools, lots of instruments, uh, lots of videos, like all sorts of things, where can they find you? Okay, two, two sources, I would say. Um, Jessica Kingsley Publishers www.jkp.com. A lot of my programs, books, etc., are published by JKP. Also, with a friend and colleague, Michelle Garnett, fellow clinical psychologist, we have created uh, what's called Atwood and Garnet Events.com. G A R N E T Atwood and Garnet Events.com. And we, through COVID 19, have been producing a number of uh, webcasts. Of presentations where previously I would travel all over the world and people would get a chance to see me. Well, you still can. But if you go to atwoodandgarnetevents.com, you can download uh, four and five or six hour presentations on many different topics. You can rent them for a month. Right. I did see that. It seems really easy to access and very intuitive and lots of great topics there as well. So um, cool. And I will put all of that information in this podcast description so people have it easily available to them and can access. Okay. Thank you, Ilya. It's been a lovely session. Yes, it has. Thank you so much. And you have a, a great day. 
Thanks for listening to Autism in Real Life. This is Elia Walsh, and if you like the show, please hit subscribe so you can get notified each time a new episode is released. Also, if you join our email list at thespectrumstrategy.com, you can get a code to attend one of my online courses for free. See you next time.